ready yes all right here we go today is sunday april 19th 2015 and this is episode 114 of the defensive security podcast my name is jerry bell and joining me tonight as always is mr andrew callett hey jerry how you doing man doing very well how are you i'm good i'm good you know getting ready to start the work week i hear that so, uh, just a, a reminder that the thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our employer. Uh, the first order of business is uh, just our normal reminder about the High Tech Crime Investigations Association conference coming up August 30th through September 2nd. Uh, the, the tickets, by the way, are 750 bucks, but if you use the the discount code defensive security you will get a 10% discount which is kind of real money uh, that conference by the way is being held in Orlando Florida and we are also giving away a ticket so that's kind of a valuable thing and the way we're doing that is we're asking people who are interested to tweet to our uh, podcast Twitter ID at defensivesec and I uh, will put you into the the lottery, which we will uh, draw. I think the first week of May. Indeed, or just mention us on Twitter. Well, mention that Twitter account. Yep, that works too. But you know, make sure you can go because this does not include airfare, hotel, that kind of thing. And uh, but, does sound pretty cool. I'll I'm yeah. intending to be there, and um, you know, I, I think we'll be. At least I'll be inter- doing some interviews. I don't know if you've figured out if you're going or not i do need to figure that out i'm not sure yet good deal i do know i'm going to Debrecon, so i gotta figure out if work will let me uh deal with both got it all right well it is uh you know it's that time of year by the way it's, it's like infor- information security christmas <laughs> really yeah, absolutely. Where you have all sorts of anticipation, you wake up the next morning, and, and there, after you open all the gifts, you're left disappointed because you think uh, what you would really wanted. Uh, oh man, there's some there's some stuff coming out there. <laughs> <laughs> no, of course I'm talking about the Verizon Data Breach Investigations Report. Oh, I see. It's like this. So it's not about strange old men crawling into your house via the chimney to. Rummage through your things. No, no. Okay. No, no. That's something entirely different. Anyway, yes. Anyway, so um, yes, the 2015 DBIR was released last week, and it is a really great report this year. I think it's a great report every year, but this year it was, in my mind, uh, particularly good. So I thought we'd spend some time talking through some of the highlights. Sounds good. Yeah, it's... Uh... You know, there's a lot of reports in the industry. I would say in general that Verizon's thus far has ended up being one of the more respected 
and valid sort of reports that we get. Uh, doesn't seem to really be pushing much of an agenda. Doesn't seem to be marketing influenced. It, it's really good, just raw data and good analysis and useful commentary, I think. Yeah, I, I think that the other thing I really like about it too is they're very explicit about what you can and can't derive out of the data. You know, they, it's clearly written by people who are, in fact, data scientists and understand statistical methods and things like that. So it's, um, you know, it's good. I don't, I don't shake my fist at the sky when I, when I read it. So uh, anyhow, some of the highlights, I actually have quite a few highlights here, so we'll just go through them. Uh, some uh, up right up front, they have some interesting findings from their analysis of this year's pool of incidents and breaches. The first is that uh, they they found that seventy percent of attacks where mo- the motive of the attack was known involved a secondary victim, and so th- I know that it might not be very clear at first, but basically think about. A strategic web compromise where a uh, you know somebody's web server is hacked and defaced or altered in some way with the intention of modifying or w- of attacking some other party that would be an example or um, you know somebody being infected with a piece of malware which is actually you know a, a DDoS uh, bot client that is another example the you know the the DDoS person or or entity is the victim, the secondary victim, is the person who had the malware installed. So um, kind of a, kind of an interesting stat. Um, the next thing I noticed is that the time to discover the breach improved quite a bit. Uh, there, there, I think it was a pretty big uptick from uh, last year, and I'm trying to find the exact... Uh, number, but you know, basically, so in 2014, uh, if, if my my graph is right, the the number of of breaches discovered in days or less was somewhere in the range of 10 percent, and in 2014, that jumped up to I think um, right around 40 45 percent, which is a pretty impressive jump. Now, you know, they they do go on to say that that is quite possibly related to their you know the the, the pool, the new pool of people that they are or organizations that they're they're pulling in data from. So it's uh it'll be interesting to see how that changes again next year. Uh let's see. So next up is uh in 60% of cases the attackers were successful or basically successfully breached the victim within minutes, which is, uh, I, I think that's a very interesting. Well, that makes sense, right? I mean, how long do most exploits actually take to, to conduct? Not, well, that's a good point, but we we have often talked about how some of these attacks kind of happen over the course of months. Well, initial yeah. breach, right? But that doesn't mean that they've hit their ultimate objection or objective. Well, that's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, the next, next thing I observed is that internal versus external threats is really backwards to everything else you hear about. You know, yep. there, there are so many reports to say, Oh, the insider threat is, you know, is the vast majority of, of the problem. 
it's pretty clear that around 80% is external and around 20% is internal. I wonder if when people are kind of touting that insider threat is the problem, they're also including unwitting insiders who were co-opted in some way into being malicious accidentally. Possibly. And, you know, here's the, here's the other thing that, that struck me as I read this and as I read a lot of the other reports. A lot of the other reports are not based on data. Mm-hmm. The, the data that they're based on is actually survey results. And, you know, driven by folks who are selling a product to deal with insider threat issues? Well, I mean, that there could be some of that, but we're going to talk about mobile in a couple of minutes. But, you know, I, I think that even if you're interviewing, you know, just IT managers or, or security people at organizations, for whatever reason, there's interesting biases that might drive people to answer questions differently. And and so it's it's really interesting when you take a look at what the actual data yields. And uh, I think that's what we have here. So um, moving on, they in, this year they actually created a new section called Before and Beyond the Breach. And uh, last year they had distilled down their attacks into a couple different patterns and they have that um later in the report but this is uh this is kind of a net new thing which i thought bared some discussion the first topic in this section is indicators of compromise and and basically threat intelligence sharing and uh you know this is a something that that has resonated with me or 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 something that's been occupying my mind for a while and you know they they make the point in here that after analyzing uh, a, a number of different threat intelligence feeds and kind of comparing the uh, the elements or or the the different records if you will in each of those feeds they find very little overlap between the different feeds and so the point is that in order for that to be an effective part of your program you more or less have to subscribe to all of them. Otherwise, you're going to be blind to a large swath of of threats, which I thought was an interesting observation. I'd also be interested in, let's say you did subscribe to all of them, how valid is that data still? Well, well, that's a great, that's a great point. And they, they go on to say that 75% of the attacks had moved from victim zero to victim one within 24 hours and 40% were in, in uh, one hour or less. And that kind of says how fast do you have to, you know, be able to ingest and then act on data coming from a threat intelligence feed, not even counting the, you know, the, the requirement for that original breached entity to actually get the data into the feed in the first place. It's starting to sound like our problem with antivirus dat files. <laughs> yes, indeed. And uh, and then what was even more interesting is that the majority of indicators were only relevant for a day. Huh. Well, this is what we've sort of been grousing about on threat intelligence, and it's really good to have some good data to back it up, which is, frankly, is this entire industry snake oil? How valid truly is it? 
you know, I guess it kind of goes back to something we, we talked about last last time. It would be really very interesting to have some kind of an objective assessment of how how much better are you off at responding or deflecting attacks if you have threat, you know, some kind of threat intelligence feed versus not. Right. And, you know, would you be better off spending that money? Some, doing something else. I don't know. It's- it appears that the industry has just accepted threat intelligence is the way to go. I'm not convinced of that. Intuitively, it seems to make sense, right? You want to share information, have a herd immunity, as they mentioned in the Verizon report. I am kind of back to the same thing that I said earlier, which is that this is assuming that somebody somewhere gets compromised they develop the specific indicators of compromise. They share it with their threat intel provider in some way. That threat intel provider validates it, normalizes it, and shares it back out. You grab it and somehow use that in some other piece of technology before that exact same IOC comes to you. There's a whole right. lot of assumptions and race conditions in there. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it is important to point out that not every indicator expires or, or becomes irrelevant after a day. So, you know, it's we know, for instance, from the APT1 report and things like that, that some of that infrastructure f- for some of the attackers does stay up for a long time. And, and so in those cases, maybe it would be useful. But I think what I've picked up is that that's you know, that's not the rule. Those aren't the kinds of attacks that people are mostly facing. So, you know, you just have to be cognizant of what you're what you're trying to defend against. Right. Well, and the other thing that scares me, though, is that you've got all this effort going into dealing with these threat intel feeds. And you've got your, you know, incident response guys looking at what's coming in or your – how much are you diverting your resources trying to process this threat intel that isn't really useful to you? That's a good, great point. That's a great point. So, you know, I, I kind of like uh, we talked about with – you know, with the uh, social, the security awareness training, it would be very interesting to figure out how, you know, how valuable is threat intelligence to your organization. You know, and, and I think there are ways to do that. You just have you have to be creative about it. I'm sure the threat intel vendors, if if they were to hear this, would be raging at it. And they could they could probably say, well, here. You know, 20 things I can think of off the top of my head where our threat intelligence helped this customer. Great. That may be true. But yeah. how many hits versus misses did they have? Yeah, anecdotes aren't data. You know, it, it, it's like looking at a psychic who does a cold read. You know, they might have had 30 hits out of 600 guesses. Yeah, yep. Right? And if those 30 hits are what people remember and put on TV, wow, that looks like an amazing psychic. That's right. Well, Cold reading is a technique. It's it's a scam. It's it's used to elicit the feeling and the belief that somebody is actually psychic. So if we as humans fall for it, and not because we're dumb or naive or whatever, it's just it's just our brains work that way. So I go back to show me scientific rigor that threat intelligence feeds truly help organizations understanding that people resources, money resources, and time resources are finite, and this is a better use of my time and money and people. Yeah. And from that from that perspective, I wonder if 
if it is more useful for those industries that are more apt to be targeted by uh, you know, by the attackers who would be more apt to be caught by the threat intelligence feed in the first place. Right. And the other thing that, that you know, I've got a bunch of notes too on the, on the DBIR, but we'll go through your stuff first. Um, as soon as these start becoming highly effective, the attackers can just change their behavior. That's right. Anyway, carry on. That's right. Phishing is the next section. They said, uh, this was pretty interesting, between 10 and 20% of phishing emails are effective based on some analysis they did, um, which isn't surprising. I don't think that should be a surprising number to anybody. But what I hadn't consider, considered is that means that if you send, on average, if you send 10 emails out, you know, between one and two of those emails is, gonna, is going to have a victim fall for it. So that is, uh, that, that's a just a, a really important way to think about it, right? It's um, anyway. Uh, let's see. They point out that fifty percent of users open a phishing email within the first hour. For those that fall for it. For those that fall for it, right? And then uh, the time to first open a phishing email is one minute and twenty-two seconds on average. Interesting. So if you've got a sandboxing technology a la FireEye that is taking those attachments, assuming it's an attachment as opposed to a link, or even something that is processing that link, it's very likely that that link or attachment is going to be clicked on before your sandboxing technology can fully process it. Yeah, that's. I think that's exactly what it tells me. Um, they, they do interview, I think, um, someone from SANS and... Uh, MITRE, I believe, and they they pointed out that both of those organizations rely on, and I know we've had some discussions with people about this. They rely on on their user base to be part of that, you know, sensor net, the uh, phishing sensor net, and you know, I I certainly am in the camp that that's not a really a winning strategy, but you know, I think. One thing that, that I hadn't really thought through very well, and I'm conceding that here, is if you have if you have a mechanism, right, where you know your uh, your population of employees can you know somehow identify quickly identify, and then uh, that that identification gets proper, they can quickly identify a fish, and that identification quickly gets propagated out. So that, you know, maybe they are the first one to see it and they do recognize it and they can click a button and now, you know, that they've somehow, some way um, inoculated all the other people from that particular thing. You know, that, that, I don't exactly know how you would do that. Um, I'm not real familiar with any particular technology, but, you know, I, I, I suspect there are ways to do that. Uh, so that, that's, an opportunity, right? And so, if if you do it, if you go about it that way, then I, I I'm a, I'm in agreement that that would be beneficial. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, and this goes back to you know training that sort of thing, infosec awareness. Again, all you know, all these efforts have a finite you know, amount of energy that can be put towards them. So we're trying to find that right balance. How much training is enough to actually move the needle uh, versus spending your money elsewhere? Yeah, absolutely. 
Vulnerabilities is next, and just a couple of bullet points there. They point out that 99.9% of exploited vulnerabilities were exploited over one year after the CVE was published. 99.9%. I have a lot of problem with that stat, and I'll tell you why when we get into it. Let's see. I've noticed a couple other things that didn't make sense to me when you put all these into perspective. So what this is saying is that so CV's been out for a year, likely, highly, highly, highly likely, the vendor has a patch and people aren't patching. Right. And really old CVEs, very old vulnerabilities are what people are using. Yep. Okay, yep. carry on. So, well, I, that was, um, you know, I, I guess the next, the next uh, carry-on point to that is that, you know, they're... Their recommendation is that, based on that finding, our vulnerability management programs really need to be fo- more focused on being thorough and methodical rather than you know really fast. And yet, a few pages later, they have a stat that half of the CVEs were exploited within two weeks of being published. Well, so so you have to keep in mind that what what population you're considering. So they're what what they're saying in this ninety nine point nine percent population is that of all exploitation that was done in two thousand fourteen, ninety nine point nine percent used vulnerabilities that were older than a year. Okay, but if you looked at vulnerabilities that were released last year, there were a number of them that were exploited within two weeks of them being released. And so their their point is that okay, yeah, it by volume the vast majority of exploitation happens on really old vulnerabilities. However, there are definite cases, Heartbleed, Shellshock, and you know, and a few others notable ex- examples where exploitation happens really really fast. Um, but again, that falls into that point one percent. So we've got two problems here. We've got both a rapidity of exploitation once a CV is published, which we need to deal with, and really old or aged CVs are still being attacked. So we both have to make sure we've patched everything and patch it quickly. Well, I, 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 to, to me, the, what this says to me is that priority number one needs to be understanding what's in our environment everything that's in our environment. Priority number two is making sure that we have a plan to consistently patch all of those things within some reasonable time, you know, shorter than a year. Right. And, and you know, have an affirmative, uh, you know, some kind of an affirmative process that makes sure that patching actually happens. And then, uh, then you start looking at those you know the, the 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 flash in the pans, the heart bleeds, the shell shocks. That's you know those are the, I think that's the, again that's the point one percent. Certainly can't ignore those, but that's not how people are getting compromised by and large. You know the other thing that they talked about that I thought was interesting is that CVs as old as those published in nineteen ninety nine up through current, all have a smattering of statistically significant. Data points. 
yep. being used. Yep. I, I will tell you, I, you know, I talk with my friend Bob every now and then. And, uh, and Bob tells me that his company, uh, you know, it's a very pretty large company, right? His company has little flare-ups of, um, you know, of MS-08067, you know, of, of um, uh, the, I'm drawing a blank on the damn name of it right now, but, you know, the, the worm that exploits MS-80067. Config? Configer, thank you. Wow. <laughs> to dust off some memory spells on that one. Yeah, yeah. No, and uh, so yeah, he 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 tells me that they have they've got that that's now, you know, 7 years old. Yeah. So you know, I, So that's a that's a failure of asset management and or patching. And configuration management and you know, just think about think about the kinds of things that go into that sort of you know, that sort of thing happening, right? Either that stuff has been isolated somewhere and to the point where it hasn't been exposed to daylight and all of a sudden it gets exposed to daylight or, you know, people have windows 95 CDs hanging out or windows XP CDs hanging out and, uh, and start spinning up virtual machines or, or what, what have you. And I, I would, I would imagine by the way, that virtual machines are going to make this problem a lot harder. Slip streaming is your friend folks. <laughs> yep. And if you're not familiar with that, by the way, it's where you can roll a new install CD with patches built into it. Yeah, yeah. I, but I, I do think that I, I think we're going to see this problem become much more exacerbated over time as uh, as virtual you know, as virtual machine infrastructure and cloud infrastructure becomes much more common because. I, if we've, we already see it, right? I mean, we've already we've already talked about numerous breaches. Bit nine is an example, um, where you know they had a they had a virtual machine that was you know built, shut down, and and kind of idled, and then somebody came along later and started it back up, and Bing Bang Boom, somebody compromised it, and now they're in your environment. And and uh, I, you know, I, I think uh, with the convenience of you know, virtual machines and cloud infrastructure, you have this, you know, this, this contra issue that has to be dealt with. So anyway, uh, moving on, mobile is next. And uh, it's kind of interesting that the theme is mobile isn't a problem. Um, but there are problems and Android is problem. Which I thought was pretty interesting. You know, they they point out that Android wins the you know the the mind share of problems of malware problems in the mobile space, and not only that, they win so hard that when they analyzed the things going on with iOS, they were almost exclusively failed attempts to use Android exploits or malware on iOS devices. <laughs> so yeah but what was most interesting to me and this is kind of goes back to something we we're talking about earlier read any opinion survey or or attitude survey or focus survey of of you know cisos or cios or security people and what will they tell you then is in the top three threats 
that they worry about. Mobile devices. Yep. And here we have, you know, kind of objective evidence that says, well, that's interesting, but nobody's getting owned by it. Not yet. It's coming, likely, but not well, yet. I agree, it's coming. I think we so can all agree again, it's coming. Does this go back to the vendors pushing this agenda? Gartner being fed by the vendors pushing? What's leading to these mistakes? What's leading to these mismatches of expectations and quote-unquote common sense industry knowledge not being supported by the data? Where are we getting this bad stuff from? That's an, that's that's the $64,000 question. I I have to believe that what you said, at least in part, explains it. And that is, you know, marketing and, um, you know, press releases and reports and industry, you know, industry reports and whatnot. Uh, but I don't know. Beyond that, I don't know. It, you know, I, I guess there's, it just seems intuitively bad, right? It's, you know the the devices by and large are owned by the employee. We know that there's we know that when they leave they go home and they surf porn on it all day long, and then they come they come back to work and they're accessing you know our our our, our big unencrypted database of PHI. What could possibly go wrong there? So right. they so they get you know that gets put on the top. So I don't know. That's an interesting an interesting thing, and and kind of goes again back to the point that. Opinion surveys are opinion surveys. Yeah. That they're not – that you just have to keep that in mind. Now, to be said, to be fair, there's something to be said about anticipating a threat and trying to get ahead of the threat, not to use a annoying – Oh, man. I know. I know. I'm sorry. But anticipating a threat and being able to adjust to it makes sense. However – once again, I go back to we have finite budget, and that budget could be money, people, time, whatever. So if we're wasting a lot of time on mobile and it's not really a problem yet, what are we ignoring instead? Well, exactly right. Exactly right. Um, you know, the other thing that, that, that strikes me generally is that with mobile, we have an opportunity potentially to re-architect things so that they're more intrinsically resilient than maybe our our legacy PC infrastructure. So, you know, I, I I see lots of reverse proxies and limitations on, you know, what mobile what exactly the mobile devices can do and connect to and things like that. So, um, those are those are potentially, you know, outcroppings of people being very cautious about it. And so maybe that's you know kind of feeding back into the reason that it's not a problem in the first place. I don't know. So moving on, malware is is next. There's, there was really only one quote in here that I wanted to cover. It's most of it is pretty sensible stuff. Uh, you know, they 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 point out that malware is very difficult to uh, you know difficult problem because everybody sees different pieces of malware. There's very very little malware that is this, where the same piece of malware hits different organizations. And they, they point out that uh, you know receiving a never-before-seen piece of malware does not mean it's an advanced or targeted attack. And yep. if you can take one thing away from that section, that's it right there. 
Well, and I think the other key metric they say it's 70 to 90% of malware samples across their broad category is unique to that single organization. That's right. So the bad guys have gotten extremely good at modifying their code to make it, in general, unique to each target. Yeah. And so signature-based AV has no chance. Right. what this comes down to. Right. Most of that's automated, by the way. So don't don't think that you have these people toiling away trying right. to figure out how to, you know, how to get your create some custom piece of malware to to infect your organization. This is all automated stuff. There's so this is telling us we're not special. You're not a special snowflake. <laughs> it's not a targeted attack by a nation state. That's it's right. It's just a common technique. That's right. I think they they actually make the point that you know. Unique snowflakes fall in the back in everybody's backyard. So, uh, let's see. Moving on, almost done with my list. Um, impact. I love this section. I absolutely love this section. So, um, in this in this section on impact, they actually they actually talk about the cost of data breaches. And you know, so so the the oft-cited Ponemon report is kind of in their in their sites. They they point out that uh, when when they do an uh, an equivalent analysis of what Ponemon does to come up with their two hundred one dollars per record, they actually come out with fifty eight cents per record. So you know, it kind of shows you based on the types of data that you're looking at, you can get very different answers. They also pointed out that the cost of of you know per record breaches or breach costs is not a linear number. You know, it's a it's a it's a curve. And it's a curve that has a fair amount of uncertainty around it. And so it it is really if if you are going to try talking to your management about you know cost per you know cost per record breaches i highly encourage you to read this this is the most sensible treatment of this area that i think i've ever read so um it's it's really great they actually give a table for the uninitiated um you know based on record counts uh on you know, what the what the low end low end high end and average cost would be for you know, for that uh, for a, a breach with a certain number of records, you know, from zero to a hundred, a hundred to a thousand, a thousand to ten thousand, and so on. So, um, you know, it it's um, it's pretty enlightening. And it, the 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 short answer is that the the cost of of you know per record impact goes down considerably. As the number of records goes up. So, anyway, that um, that they they then go in and do a kind of a brush up on some of the categories they they built last year. I'm not going to talk through those, but they did refresh and in the summary they did refresh their mapping uh, of their findings in the analysis of these breaches from 2014 to the SANS top 20 critical security, uh, cybersecurity controls. And the top ones 
are two-factor authentication, patching web services, verifying the need for internet-facing devices, proxying outbound traffic, and web application testing. There's a few others, but those are the those are by by and large the the, the big hitters. So I know you have your own list. Why don't you go ahead and? No, you hit the vast majority of mine. Um, so yeah, you hit that. that. Uh, the trends that are on the rise I noticed was RAM scraping and phishing is increasing in prevalence, which I thought was interesting. Sorry, I have a very loud motorcycle cruising through my neighborhood right now, being obnoxious. Not to take anything away from motorcycles, but seriously. They don't go well with podcasts. No, they really don't. Uh, 10 CVEs, just 10, accounted for almost 97% of the exploits observed in 2014. (laughs) That's amazing. Wow. So we... I mean, there's so many interesting things you can draw from that. Apparently, the same techniques work over and over and over again. And they're very good at figuring those out. The other thing I thought was really interesting was a CV being added to Metasploit is probably the single most reliable predictor of exploitation in the wild. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, um, there's a... Th- forget the person's name, but he works for Risk.io. Mike, Michael Reutman, I think is his name. He's given a number of talks about that very thing. And, you know, basically he, he kind of maps out how it is, uh, it's a much better predictor, you know, the, the availability of an exploit in Metasploit or ExploitDB is a much better predictor of, um, you know, of compromise than the CVSS score. Yeah, I would agree. So, you know, if you want to do open source threat intelligence, start watching for things getting added to meta exploit. Yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of my takeaway there. Yeah. Um, hit a lot of the rest of them that I, that I was on, uh, all the other things I picked up. It's a really good report and I would encourage people to read it. Uh, but if not, hopefully we hit the highlights for them and covered the, the relevant takeaways. Yeah. It, it, I, I will reiterate that it is, it's very much worth reading. It's worth your time. It's a, it's a great read. It is a little long. It's 70 pages, but... It is. Although they do try to keep it interesting and keep a sense of humor and, you know, have some snark and... That's right. I think think they're actually copying our style, if you ask me. (laughs) It could be. Could be. Well, maybe not. All right. So our our next story, this this is probably the most requested story we've ever had to to talk about. And it's not even something we would normally talk about. Yeah. So this one's from Ars Technica, but I figured we, you know, we would talk about it. Hang on, I got to get my duct tape to wrap my head uh, so it doesn't go, explode. Go ahead. All right. So a researcher who joked about hacking a jet plane barred from United Flight. So if you are at all plugged into the information security community, you are very well familiar with the story where Chris Roberts, who is a uh, you know, pretty prominent security researcher uh he you know he uh, he's made some waves because his his area of research is largely focused on airlines right or or airplanes and 
basically what happened was he uh, he tweeted while he was on a plane. He tweeted some, you know, oh boy. It, basically, he, he kind of tweeted he was going to hack the plane, right? Um, it's a little more detailed than that, but it, I, I think it was probably not the most wise thing for him to do. And uh, he was taken off the plane and ended up having to fly on a different airline. And later he tried to get on another United, this is United Airlines, by the way. He tried to get on another United Airlines flight a couple of days later. And uh, United Airlines corporate security actually intercepted him at the gate and told him he would not be allowed to board the the plane and uh and that they, he would be notified by mail why yeah, it was pretty obvious uh but in the in the, the one thing i missed is in the initial uh the initial goat rodeo when he tweeted that he was pulled off the plane and interviewed by the fbi for four hours and had all of his electronic devices which apparently was quite a collection seized and uh and i, I guess he still doesn't have them back um, and now the EFF is representing him. And so there's really two issues, I think, at hand here. Number one is it was pretty monumentally bad form to tweet that out. I mean... I disagree. Really? Yep. See, I think I think it's... I, uh, here's the thing, right? I think that... We have, and and you can, we can all disagree that this should be the case, right? But you you can't talk about a bomb in any context without people. Why? I don't know. <laughs> because because we we have gone full. It's the know, thought police, man. Full crazy. Well, absolutely. But I I. I do not subscribe to the political correct spin on this story that Chris shouldn't have tweeted this. Satire, joking, is something that has always been a part of our culture, has always been a part of how we deal with things. He even puts a smiley face on his tweet, right? And... Also, by the way, the ICAST system is the engine instrumentation and crew alerting system. It is used to send messages back and forth between maintenance and the crew and their dispatchers and the crew. Basically, what he was saying is that let's see if we can inject a message into the text messaging system the airline uses. Okay? Not that big a deal, first off. Second off, even if he said that, he didn't do it. So the fact of the matter is, you know, if I say to you, Jerry, I'm going to break into your house. That's not illegal. Well, I'm not a lawyer. When I go break into your house, it's illegal. So we are afraid of our own digital shadow these days. I refuse to word, use the word cyber. We have now basically gotten to the point where security researchers, and I, I think I credit uh, Rob Graham with this, I'm not sure, are now like witches and they're practicing witchcraft and they must be burned at the stake. So because he makes a joke, right? What if 
you know, fine. So let's say some guy's a screenplay writer and he's writing a screenplay on the plane and he's thinking about this and he goes, man, what if somebody could, could, could hack into this? And he starts writing that on his laptop and the person next to him looks over his shoulder and sees that and we freak out. Yep. No, it I- is utter bullshit. <laughs> now, let me be clear. United has every right to ban him as a, as a customer. Right. I, I'm a libertarian. I fully agree with the right of any business to choose who they do business with, even in light of all the anti-discrimination stuff going on. At the end of the day, I still think nobody should be forced to do business with anybody. However, the FBI interviewing him for four hours and confiscating his equipment is absolutely absurd to me. So I, I would I, I don't disagree with a lot of what you said. I think the difference is this particular situation involving a plane. We, especially as a country, have gone completely insane when it comes to airline security. So I, I would agree. I would say that in any other context, we wouldn't have seen such a ridiculous response if this would have been a bus. Or, but isn't there something to be said of, of pointing out the absurdity? Wh- isn't there something to be said for people, you know, starting to take a stand going, I am Spartacus, right? Clearly, this is driven by irrational fear. Yeah. If he had actually done it, I would understand this response. No, I, I, I don't. I, I am. I, I think the whole, the whole thing is crazy. I guess. What what I am okay, but you started with he nope. shouldn't have tweeted this, right? And I and I still stand behind that because we have gone crazy. So so, I guess it depends on where you're at politically, right? So doesn't that enable the crazy? It doesn't that just it doesn't set up the it crazy doesn't for the way it is. The crazy doesn't change because I have been because I did this. No, I agree. Okay, I. Okay, so if I understand what you're saying is that he should have known better, that society is the way it is. Yes. He should have expected this. Exactly. Response. Okay. That's what I'm saying. I mean, you know, look, if if I if I'm on an airplane and I tweet out that, you know, I'm gonna sick my imaginary dragon to come in and, you know, eat the wing off the plane, they're probably gonna do the same thing. <sighs> right? I get it, but it's not right. It shouldn't be that way. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess I guess what I'm trying to point is that we have been so conditioned to just accept this stuff. Yeah, yeah. How, how's that saying go? God grant me the. Well, <laughs> I get it, but at the same time, I'm not willing to completely concede that we can't change this. Uh, now, let's be clear. Any law enforcement can detain you for up to 24 hours and, you know, that's just life, right? I know a lot of cops. If a cop wants to arrest you, he's going to arrest you. They can release you within 24 hours without charges. There probably ain't shit you can do about that. I get that, right? So don't, don't dick with the law enforcement if you don't want to have your day ruined. I understand that. I guess that's, <clears throat> that was where my, my point was. Yes, right there, exactly. But at the same time, what is the chilling effect of this entire situation? You know, to be honest, I'm not sure that there is a chilling effect. It's, you know, 
I, I, under, I get what you're saying, right? But is it really a chilling effect to say that I can't have I can't have that particular Twitter conversation while I'm on a plane? Okay, so we take it to the next step. Uh, he presents a research study at a conference on this topic on how the ICAST messaging system is insecure. Which is actually what he's going, as I understand it, going to talk about it. Okay. At um, besides, and him. then the FBI intervenes, and United and other airlines ban him from flying. Again, the airlines in, go back to my libertarian sense; they have that right. But the government views that as a threat. Doesn't this go back to the fundamental security researcher problem, or, or you know? Fear that that you know the whole full disclosure debate, the whole you know again we're witches and we cannot be trusted because muggles don't understand. Well, I I I certainly agree that security right now, pe- people who can hack are definitely viewed as witches by law enforcement and the general public. I I don't disagree with that in in any way. Um, I don't, but I don't think we would have seen that kind of a response. You know, certainly we have in particular cases, but those have been much more around very specific reactions by companies, and you know, and, and their their disdain for having their name in the in the news and that sort of thing. Right. Um, you know, like Cisco with one of our former coworkers and <laughs> whatnot, and you know, so. You know, it, it, what's also interesting is that I, I think this guy Chris has also been working with the, you know, with the government on some of these issues. So, uh, um, well, I anyway. doubt the feds knew that, right? You know, you look at the response time; it's not like they have a perfect knowledge. No, that's true. Um, I just this story. You know, this is also in light of a GAO report that I have not had a chance to read. That came out that basically said the in-flight Wi-Fi system can potentially, possibly be an avenue for attack against the flight systems on an aircraft. Uh, it's also got a lot of press, and, and I'd rather go read the report myself directly. And I'll be honest, I have not had a chance yet. But you know, we were talking about this before the show. Assuming that report is anywhere within the realm of you know valid, actual technology-based reality, uh, I, I don't mind the GAO saying, hey, guys, just at least think about segregating your systems, right? Because we're getting more and more automation, and there's more and more computers in the flight deck, and there's a realm of possibility that that people on the in-flight Wi-Fi could interfere somehow, perhaps, maybe, right, if they're not segregated. At the same time, it's not going to be somebody in the back with an iPad taking over control of the aircraft and crashing it, right? You still have pilots. Well, I'm not going to get to that until I read the report. Anyway, point being, this appears to be a hot-button topic right now. Um, I just I, – I can't – I can't go so far as to say Christian had done this. I think our society shouldn't have reacted this way. Yeah, uh, maybe I'll revise my – what I no, said can, and, and you say you can have your opinion. I'm not trying no, to beat you down, man. I just no. This I, is a good debate. No, I, I I will revise it and say I don't think anybody should be surprised at the outcome. That's fair. 
and and maybe that's that that's really what I'm trying to say is I'm not surprised by the outcome. I I yeah. you know it frustrates me. <laughs> my my uh, you know my um, I don't remember how old he was at the time, but we were going through uh, we were going through security, and he, he looks over at my wife and says, "Mom, how do you build a shoe bomb?" Oh, and you know and unfortunately nothing really nothing happened um, yet. Yet. Yeah, yeah, I know yet, but um, you know that that you know that was a very uh, you know very stressful kind of thing, right? You know because you know you know what kind of crazy reaction that can garner, and or at least I feel like you know that's likely to garner a crazy reaction, and and so and so that, that's that's you know what I'm seeing here, you know. I, uh, to me, it feels like if I tweeted anything like this, you know, even if it was just complete BS, I, I'm I expect that I'm going to get pulled off the plane and interviewed and probably not allowed, allowed back on. And I I don't like it. I don't, I don't think it's right, but it is. It just is. I, I hear you, and I think where what I have a problem with is what set me off was all the articles talk about this and I'll just quote Ars Technica here because that's the one we're using has the same sort of flavor of something along the lines of quote but it's also true that the security researcher showed extremely poor judgment making the tweet that was a flashpoint for all the drama and quote uh, but Roberts also overstepped a line when he joked about hacking a specific plane as it was in mid-flight we don't need to reinforce the silliness that is security theater and the and the reaction from the government by validating their behavior as appropriate. Yeah, at the same time, though, they've you know, that's kind of become the the de facto attitude, right? I mean, it is, but I, and I think it's valid to say it's wrong. Well, I don't. I I, I agree that it's wrong. I think there's I think there's many things that are wrong with the government, but you know, I I, uh, I, I understand that if if I go and uh, you know and I, I I act counter to how the law views it, I know I'm gonna get I know I'm gonna have uh, I'm gonna have a bad day. This is born from the concept of we want to stop quote unquote attacks, terrorism, whatever it is before they happen this culture that we've gotten into now since 9-11. The problem is to do that, we become a tyrannical surveillance state with all police. Where we went from a, from a, from a society where you can think and say almost anything you want, and that really wasn't a problem. It was when you did something that the crime was committed, to now we've built this entire justice system and laws around the concept of you may do something, you're about to do something, and we're going to stop you from doing that. Right. And I think that's incredibly dangerous, and I think it's incredibly wrong. I would rather have a free system. We are free to think and say as we like, and then the action is what is prosecutable. Now, does that mean that we're probably still going to have more acts of terrorism and more acts of violence that aren't stopped? Yeah, but I don't think the trade-off is worth it, what we're doing right now. The trade-off is saying that my thoughts, my intentions 
are becoming illegal. And the only way that that can be monitored is by invasive, heavy surveillance and reaction by the government. Which is effectively where we're at. Right. I would rather go back to, yes, more people can do crazy shit and kill people in that point zero 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 one percentile than all of us live under a, a police state that's monitoring our thoughts and actions Yeah, on social media. I think I, there's a lot, a lot of people who would agree with you. Well, I think there's many more who disagree with me. Uh, it's hard to I, say. My viewpoint is is definitely radical in this in this area, but it wouldn't have been twenty years ago. Hmm. Radical moderatism. <laughs> anyway, cranky today. Wow. Uh, yeah. Holy cow. Well, hopefully, hopefully, you know, I, I look forward to feedback from the listeners on this section. Send me some tweets. Let me know what you think. <laughs> All right. I uh, we had a couple other, more stories, but I think we're going to call it a night. It's, okay. Uh, yeah, I know we spent a lot of time on the DBIR, but that's good. It's good stuff. Absolutely. It's getting late. You know, it's going to be my bedtime soon, and I still have to have dinner and all that. So, <laughs> you didn't go to the early bird special at Sign of the Beef Carver. <laughs> it's not Sign of the Beef Carver. It's Old Corral or Golden Corral. Golden Corral. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Come on, get it right. Sorry, Sign of the Beef Carver was up where I grew up, so I don't think I don't think anybody knows about them. It's it's you know where the uh, the, the golden era citizens go for their you know eight ninety nine buffet. That's right. That's Closes right. at six p.m. Why would you, why would it need to be open after that? I don't know. I'm gonna just shut up and stop talking. And let you close the show. <laughs> anyway. Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, it, as always, if you have any thoughts or opinions, send us an email to info at defensivesecurity.org. You can... Hey, by the way, oh, oh, I didn't say this at the beginning of the show. Our thoughts and opinion most assuredly do not represent those of our employers, past, present, or future. Oh, I did say that, actually. Did you? I, I did. missed it. Okay, I'm but, just reinforcing But yeah, the, the, you know, double indemnification right there. <laughs> yeah, okay, carry on. <laughs> so so uh, you can find the uh, links to the stories we talked about which really were two, uh, at our website, www.defensivesecurity.org. You can follow the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And you can follow uh, Mr. Kellett on Twitter at Lurg. And with that, we will talk as again. As long as the government lets me keep my account. <laughs> <laughs> which which could not be very, could uh, not be a very long time now, right? It's true. So... Anyway, we will catch you again next week. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye. See you guys. Bye-bye. If you can't measure it, it's not worth doing. Right? God damn it. You got eagles going on over there or what? Absolutely, man. I've started a falconry. Wow. I'm teaching the hunt executives. Nice. Swoop down and steal their toupees. <laughs> and their BMW keys. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.